Hey, and uh, welcome to episode two of the Mentor Podcast. It's Dave again. Uh, I just want to say thank you, first off, for the people who uh, gave me some feedback for episode one, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It was quite a weird experience, to be honest, you're doing, like, talking to yourself, if you like, in that situation. And I found sort of talking about my childhood and things that affected me, a strange mixture of quite sort of a cathartic sort of uh, vibe. Also, probably brought up a few things that uh, made me feel a bit, you know, actually quite emotional, to be honest with you, after doing it. So uh, there we go. Anyway, so episode two, to be honest with you, is really episode 1.1, because what I realised when I listened to episode one, and that in itself, listening to yourself talk for an hour and 15 minutes, is, uh, is a weird experience, but I realised I'd actually missed some quite important things, um, situations that actually affected me quite a lot, and probably explain how I end up where I am now, probably because I was sick of listening to my own voice. So today I'm going to talk a bit about some important events that happened in my life um, within the last sort of six, seven years, which have kind of put me where I am now. Then I'm going to talk about children a bit because... I was fortunate enough last week to have uh, a couple of my grandchildren to stay, and it was fantastic. But when you spend time with kids, they give you a real perspective on the world that you don't have because you're not a child. So I think there's some good stuff to talk about there. And then finally, uh, there were some, I suppose you could call them aha moments from doing the first episode. Uh, that made me think about myself and what I'm good and bad at, and uh, yeah, that was that, that was a it was a very reflective thing. And actually, if for another reason, then I got a lot out of it. it was worth doing. Anyway, so straight into kind of the rest of the story. And I didn't really go into stuff much in the last six seven years because I think because of a time situation. But 2016. Um, we decided to go and do some country service in the police and uh, we ended up going to work in, in South Headland, up in the Pilbara. Only for a year in the end, and that's another long story I won't even go into. Um, but we went there because we genuinely wanted to be of service and also to have a better experience ourselves of what the life's like outside of the, the Perth metro area because it's a different world out there. And we hadn't done that before. So we went up there in, uh, I think it was October 2016. And it was uh, a real eye-opening experience. Unfortunately, um, two weeks after we arrived, my mum passed away back in England. So that kind of, uh, that obviously had a big impact on me. And uh, obviously my dad had died back in 99, so she was my last surviving parent and unfortunately the way things worked out I wasn't able to be there when she passed away uh, and that obviously had a big impact on me and it was uh, it made settling into a new part of the world even harder than it was anyway. Going on in the background of this in 2000 I think it was 15 might have been 14 I went to the doctors for my uh, annual sort of checkup. I've been a, a really fit, healthy guy for probably, I turned 53 yesterday, so 20, since my dad died when I was 30, 
it really made me get my, my health sorted out and um, love exercise, eat well, etc., etc. Anyway, went to the doctor's and uh, he was listening to my heart, as he does. And he said, uh, Dave, everyone ever told you you've got a heart murmur? And I looked at him and said, no. No, they haven't. I've never had any kind of feedback like that at all. We go, well, I think you have one. And I'm like, nah, I'm sure you're wrong. Anyway, uh, I was sent for a ECG. And lo and behold, I was diagnosed with um, what's called a prolapsing mitral valve. And what your mitral valve is, is it kind of links the top and bottom chambers of your heart together. And the valve essentially is not closing the way it should be closing. Now, at the time, I had uh, zero symptoms. I was training every day, uh, you know, doing a bit of jujitsu and uh, just kind of CrossFit style training. Felt pretty fit and you know, healthy for when I was there, 40, uh, 45-ish. Uh, I had thought, well, you know what, maybe I am getting a bit old here because I'm slowing down, but I just thought it was that. Anyway, so uh, the doctor said to me, oh, well, look, we'll send you to a cardiologist and uh, see what they want to do about it. And the cardiologist said, uh, okay, well, I'll refer you to a surgeon and saw the surgeon. And long story short, it wasn't, it was classed as moderate. Um, it wasn't severe enough to do what was quite invasive surgery. And uh, we just monitor it until it got worse. But he said to me, apparently 12% of the population have this and uh, the vast majority of those are asymptomatic and don't even know they've got it. So there's every chance that could be the situation. So um, that was going on the background. I started having some symptoms of what's called atrial fibrillation in about 2016, I think it was. And what atrial fibrillation is basically is your heart decides that it really doesn't like being in the rhythm it should be and just goes apeshit at any random time. Tend to be at night for me, and uh, tend to be on the lad my left hand side and my heart would go out rhythm, so it would, I'd be laying there in bed. And I had a resting heart rate of about oh, probably 42, and it would suddenly shoot to be 142, and then it would crash down to 25, up to 80, up to 90, and then just, it was just basically there was no kind of pattern there. And it was really actually not a pleasant experience. Um, I sort of learned about this condition and dealt with it a lot through lifestyle adjustment and supplementing with a particular kind of magnesium, but I was still having these episodes every now and then. So anyway, we're up in South Headland, and I can't say enough how it wasn't what we thought it would be. And what I realized very quickly was that I'd almost like signed up for like a front row seat for the what felt like the end of the world because it really was just a, such an eye-opening place to work. It was my first experience, you know, proper experience of working around and alongside and with uh, indigenous people. And it was an amazing experience, but to see just the tragedy of so many lives was just heartbreaking. To give you an idea here, and still so many people who live in Perth have no idea this is the situation. So South Headland's a uh, town of about, I think, 12,000 people roughly. Mainly uh, it's to do with mining. There's lots of fly-in, fly-outs around there and uh, mining camps. 
there is a lot of uh, indigenous uh, communities within a few, sometimes a few hours, a few hundred, few thousand kilometres. And because South Headland is a, a medical hub, a central hub, a lot of people come in from those communities into South Headland. So it's a very transient population. And whereas most of those um, communities are now dry communities, where no alcohol is allowed, obviously in a, situ in a place like South Headland that's not the case. Now the liquor land in South Headland, um, I don't know if it's still the case, but when I worked there it was the single biggest seller of uh, emu export in the entire country on a daily basis. And the abuse of alcohol and the social problems that came from that was just yeah, almost apocalyptic. It's hard to kind of put into words how bad it was. And it really opened my eyes to this dirty little secret we have, not just in Western Australia, but in Australia in general, about you know how we as a society have treated indigenous people and how we just have made the situation just worse. We've just thrown money at the problem. A lot of that money is being wasted and the problem is just getting worse and worse. To give you an idea of how bad it is, the hospital in South Headland, uh, which is a small hospital in a small town, it has its own dialysis centre because the issues with uh, type 2 diabetes, which is brought on through alcohol abuse and also just really, really poor nutritional uh, use amongst the uh, indigenous people is so bad that they need their own dialysis unit. Now, it's very easy to kind of get on our high horse and say, well, you know what, everyone's an adult and uh, they make their choices and they deal with their, you know, the consequences of those choices. Yeah, and I, I understand that. But it's not as simple as that. And I would urge anybody who thinks it is that simple just to kind of look beyond what you think you know and look more deep into the problem. Because it's not a new problem. And, you know, I have many memories of uh, South Headland. Not particularly good ones, to be honest. Although, you know, from a policing perspective, it's uh, weird. I had so many bizarre situations that you have to almost laugh, you have to get through it through laughter because it's just so weird. So I probably laughed more than anywhere I've ever worked. But it was kind of that or frankly cry sometimes because the things you see, you just like scratch your head and go, wow. An example would be, so, and look, I'm writing a book at the moment about trauma and PTSD and using breath work to kind of deal with the symptoms of it. When we talk about trauma, or PTSD, I don't like to use the word PTSD because it's just a label. As soon as you label something, I don't think it really helps it, quite frankly, and I'm not a doctor, so I can't define that anyway. But trauma, if you're a copper, you know, trauma is your daily bread, particularly if you work on the front line. I never was bothered by you know, things like dead bodies. It's not pleasant, I'm not pretending it is, but for me that wasn't what upset me or didn't stay with me past the incident. What bothered me always was the, the, what was left behind, and particularly children. 
and that honestly broke my heart so many times in South Edland to see these beautiful young kids that just uh, had no hope. You know, they were young kids and their life was hopeless. You know, they, they, they were never, unless a miracle happened, going to be able to have any of the opportunities that uh, certainly I had. It's not their fault. One particular incident has stayed with me to this day. And one night we were on patrol and we got called to a burglary at one of the primary schools, which happened on an almost daily basis. So we got there and long story short, we found three uh, young kids. I think they were five, seven and eight rings a bell. Uh, all three of them had been sniffing petrol and then they'd gone into the one of the juniors primary schools there and they'd just done or tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage to one of the art units. Anyway, so um, we had to deal with them. And like, it's hard to deal with kids that age because they're A, not criminally responsible, but B, and this was a reoccurring problem, is that we needed to find somebody who was responsible for these children. Do you think we could? No, because everywhere we went to try and find somebody, no one wanted to take that responsibility. No one put their hand up and say, yeah, no, I'll, I'll look after them or, you know, I'm, I'm the responsible adult here. So we ended up bringing them back to the station. Now they had to be handed off to uh, child services, but frankly, they don't work at two in the morning. So uh, we ended up putting them down to have a, have a sleep on the, the floor of the police station, made them as comfy as we could, got them some food. And you know what? They were just happy that someone showed a bit of interest in them. They didn't really have any concept of being in trouble because they're so young, but, you know, they were, they were not bad kids. They had been robbed of the opportunities that they deserved. And we as a society, we have to try and fix this because it's all our responsibility. And one of the biggest uh, crimes we see in society is that people go, nah, not my problem, I've done nothing wrong. No, it's not about taking personal blame, but I think all of us need to take a bit of personal responsibility and realise that we're all part of you know, Western Australia or Australia or the world in general, and we can't just ignore these problems. So that was uh, that was South Edland, so I ended up, we ended up staying there a year. And I wanted to stay longer, but we had some massive housing issues, and anyway, long story short, we left, and that had a profound effect on me uh, and I guess what I saw as my role as a police officer because I was in that role in South Headland nothing more than just kind of a just a firefighter almost just just running literally sometimes from just chaos to chaos from crisis to crisis from stabbing to stabbing and it was a really, really just uh, difficult place to work. And it, it made me realise, because I always wanted to help people, that while I was in South Headland, I really didn't help anybody. Because there was no time to help anybody. You were too busy rushing from job to job. And uh, I think those places, you know, we, you only ever see them on the news when something you know, genuinely bad happens. But every day there's... Yeah, 10 incidents which are just half as bad, which no one gives two shits about. 
and I say particularly the kids. You know, the kids have no vote in this. Oh, you know, that's what I care about. I care about the children, getting opportunities to actually live lives free of abuse and neglect. And we as a society and a culture have to try and find a way to kind of make it better. Because it's, it's, we're part of that culture. Anyway, so that was South Headland. So I came back, we came back to Perth, and I ended up, um, I think that was probably the first time I really genuinely thought about was this career right for me? Because, like I said, I didn't feel I was really helping anybody. Came back to Perth and I started working as what's called a, a human source handler, which is a really, really interesting job. And looking back in hindsight, probably the most interesting job I had in the police. And uh, it was a very, very powerful uh, lesson in humility and the fact that there the societal ideals of good and bad, good and evil, really, in most cases, and I wouldn't say there are no evil people because I've met them, but um, what we generally perceive to be good and evil, in most cases those people are interchangeable. And, uh, you know, we are not so different. You know, we see people in prison and think, well, they're bad people. You know, they're for the grace of God or whatever you believe in, go you or I. When you speak to people and you find out their story, we talk about trauma, the trauma people have been through, it's no surprise that they are not good at making decisions in their best interest. So started doing that job, really enjoyed that. In the meantime, my uh, heart issue was getting uh, worse. And 2018, I went to see the surgeon had another ECG and he said, um, oh yeah, your um, prolapse valve is now uh, extremely bad and it's something we need to fix surgically. And I'm like, oh, okay then, because obviously I was sick of all the uh, issues with my heart going out of rhythm anyway, so I was happy to get it fixed. Up to this point at the age of uh, 48, 49, I had never so much as spent one night in hospital. I'd never had an operation of any description, never had a general anaesthetic, and was uh, completely ignorant to the uh, consequences of doing so. So um, June 2018, I went in for surgery for what was called a minimally invasive mitral valve repair. And this is quite an amazing operation which um, didn't exist a few years before that. Before that they had to actually go in through your sternum, cracky sternum, to uh, do this operation and then this, my surgeon was one of the ones who kind of uh, came up with this procedure where uh, they went in through essentially your, your right armpit, um, through your ribs, detached your right pec, kind of threw it over your shoulder like a handbag and then using little robot arms kind of repaired your your mitral valve with a little washer. So um, I, maybe deliberately, did zero research on this operation because frankly I didn't want to know. And uh, what I was somewhat surprised to find out as I approached it was that actually I would be going on to what's called heart bypass where they uh, stop your heart and then send your blood through essentially an artificial heart to keep you going 
and uh, that um, was uh, a bit terrifying. So I came round to my um, operation day, absolutely terrified, and uh, the surgery should have lasted three and a half hours, and unbeknown to me, uh, didn't go very well initially. And what should have been a three and a half hour surgery became just under eight hour surgery because they had to essentially do the operation twice. And it was only really because I was a fit person that they could do that amount of um, surgery in one go because it meant I was on bypass for nearly eight hours and also on a respirator on a general anesthetic for eight hours. And as I realized after the event, those things have a massive, massive impact on your body. And heart bypass is a miracle, but it does huge cell damage to your body. So anywho, I woke up, what well, turned out to be like about two days later. And uh, yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, I was pretty terrified to be honest because uh, I was on very, very strong drugs. I'd never really used any kind of strong painkillers and I was having hallucinations and shaking so much that I couldn't even send a text message and um, I just wanted to get the fuck out of the, the hospital so I ended up against advice and leaving I think I left on the Sunday I had to come home and then I went back into hospital again because it went pear-shaped and um, I remember that's probably in many respects that one of the lowest points of my life because uh, I couldn't believe how I had gone from my perspective of being a um, fit, healthy person, albeit with a slightly dodgy ticker, to being somebody who was so weak and uh, so felt so powerless that uh, I could I literally couldn't get upstairs at home. Um, so you know, at the time of the operation, I weighed. I think I had to get under 100 kilos for the operation, so I was about 98 kilos when the operation was done. Immediately afterwards, your body swells up with fluid. Um, I was up to about 108, I think. And then that crashed down over the preceding sort of like four weeks. And I think I got down to 80, about 86 kilos, uh, which for me is like, I've not weighed that since I was about 14, I reckon. And uh, I was just literally skin and bone, all my muscle was just basically just burnt up trying to repair my body and the, the following you know, three months of recovery was was one of the hardest things I've had to do um, you know I regularly apologize to my poor long-suffering wife because I was the worst patient in the world certainly for the first month because I just felt so I was terrified and I thought this was my life now that I'd had this operation but you know I wasn't going to recover and um, it was a really humbling experience. It gave me a huge amount of uh, respect for people who deal with chronic pain and, you know, long-term illness. I mean, I don't know how people do that. It's incredible. Um, anyway, so this obviously was a hugely uh, impactful moment in my life. It made me a very aware of, I suppose, my mortality. Because you know, on the operating table with your heart not beating, there's almost you're almost a bit dead, and uh, that was pretty scary. And then 
it also made me realise the importance of life. And again, that's a cliche. Um, we do take life for granted. You know, I have a ta one of my tattoos says memento, "Memento Mori," which basically means "Remember you die," because you need to remember you die so that you ensure that you live in the meantime. Um, but once I got my head straight um, around my recovery and started sort of like just dealing with the way that I didn't deal with things, wrote myself a program, all this kind of stuff. My recovery was actually very quick, and um, in my heart to touch wood uh, to this day is absolutely perfect and uh, enables me to to do you know as much exercise as I want when I want I'm generally speaking train twice a day and uh, you know I feel as healthy as I ever have done but it was a real yeah, it was a real changing time and it was uh, difficult really difficult for for me and my wife because it was uh, just something we were you know relationships like ours we've been together for 30 years now yeah, you deal with lots of stuff, but this was like the sickness. What you saw, what I saw, I was sick, but my sickness, you know, probably made my wife sick as well because I was so hard to look after, and she was so worried about me. Also, her mum was sick at the time, and it was a very difficult time for us. And uh, I wouldn't wish it my worst enemy, but at the same time, I, you know, I do believe very much that you you go through these things and. You do them for a reason, and um, they make you who you are. You know, we are a, we're kind of a summation of our life's experiences, and that was a really important one for me, and that's why I wanted to touch on it. Um, so that was recovery in 2018, 2019. And what I realized around then is that um, my love of policing, I think it started to, to die a little bit. I was still doing the human source handling and really enjoying that. But it almost ruins you for policing because you just develop a lot of empathy for people. It is very useful and powerful in that role. And it's um, but it, it's hard to kind of go back to a normal policing role afterwards, which I then did. And then led us up to moving down to Margaret River last year because we wanted to make a change and I wanted to get back to community policing. Um, and then obviously we kind of battled through the pandemic side of things and that really for me was the the nail in the coffin of my love of policing, unfortunately. Um, the way in which uh, the Brussels Rand Police treated its own people, including myself, uh, certainly uh, broke the bond of trust that I think you either have in your employer. And uh, but it's quite weird, if I look back on the last two years with the whole COVID situation. Though it, I wish none of it had ever happened because it's meant separation from my daughter and things like that. I wouldn't be sitting here now doing a podcast, you know, writing a book, teaching breath work and living in this beautiful place I live in if it hadn't happened properly because we would have probably got stuck where we were doing the same thing um, for who knows how long so I'm actually quite grateful and I think that's important that you've got to find the good in everything you know it's a shit situation but it's provided opportunities for me to do things that I would, may never have done before and that's kind of uh, where I am now so uh, that's kind of a recap of the the first 
episode and just finishing off some things I need to talk about and I think it's important to kind of get those out there so hopefully it allows people to understand a bit more kind of uh, what my story is. So the other thing I want to talk about today, I guess the crux of the episode, is, is about children. And uh, so last week we were fortunate enough to have a couple of our grandkids staying with us for a week. Really, really enjoyed it. It was fantastic to spend time with them and just... Uh, Spending time with kids is just a, I think it's just an essential part of of life for adults because it just, you know, it just changes our perception of the world and you start to see things uh, a bit more through their eyes. So I really enjoy spending time with them. And I, I want to point out that you know what I'm going to talk about today is not a criticism of them in any way, shape, or form, or their mum. It's just a kind of my observations on the way society has changed. Because if you think about children, and I was trying to think of the exact dates or years, I reckon children born since probably 2008, 2009, live in a world that has changed so much that it's almost an entirely different era of human existence. You just think about the advances in technology in the last you know, 15 years. It's just mind-numbing. Um, you know, we've got three children, and uh, the youngest one of those is uh, 27 soon. So, we were fortunate to miss out on, I guess, the uh, explosion of the internet and the uh, huge double-edged sword of social media when they were growing up uh, through teenage years. So, we there were issues with bullying and things like that. There were phones around, but there was no smartphones really. And uh, I look back now and consider myself very, very lucky to have missed out on this because I feel nothing but uh, uh, sorrow for you know, parents now raising kids in this, this completely different age. And what we saw, I guess, you know, the you, I don't think we can really underestimate the impact that social media and its associated technologies has had on, on life today and particularly on children, because you have to remember here that you know we can look at the way things have changed and have some perspective on it, because we, we saw it beforehand and we've seen it afterwards, so we can see the difference, we can see the change. This is just normal for kids. The world they are experiencing is completely normal to them. They can't see how um, much social media has invaded our lives and how you know in many cases taken over the lives of particularly kids I haven't got perspective on that so it got me thinking about you know how you know we as parents or grandparents can make that better and it's a really really hard challenge because you know the children growing up today and I, I noticed it with grandkids you know they um you know, we, we're kind of creating this generation of, of dopamine addicts, you know, and dopamine has always been a very important brain chemical. It's a reward chemical, but what it's supposed to be, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, is really a reward for effort, or you do something to get it. But the clever stroke, manipulative way in which a lot of the media, social media that the kids are exposed to, um, you know, it's creating these little dopamine addicts 
and it's, it's a hard cycle to break. And uh, yeah, I suppose what I was surprised at, I didn't, you know, hey, I'm 53, so I'm a bit old, but like I didn't know this was a thing. Um, but with the grandkids, they've got their little um, tablets, but you know they're only they only use those for like an hour a day, so they, they don't do much at all. But they are you know fascinated by them, and the thing that both of them were watching on it was on YouTube of like other people playing on uh, computer games like um, what's it called uh, Fortnite or something else. So you know you're actually watching other people playing a computer game and that kind of that gave me a major head scratch and I thought okay well am I just being an old fart here is that any different to watching me watching football or sport on the TV when I was younger I guess on one hand it probably isn't I suppose the, the difference is the availability so you know I used to love watching the uh, premiership or first division football when I was a kid and um, but that was on we watched match of a day on a Saturday night, and that was my only time I could watch football apart unless it was a midweek game or some European football. Whereas now it is uh, you know on demand, and that's what's changed. Everything is on demand. Um, I don't think that's a particularly healthy way to, for us to raise our children. If you think about. Um, on TV now, there's a television program called Googlebox. Now, I have never watched this, to be honest, because I don't watch much TV at all. But essentially, this is a television program about people watching a television program. I don't understand. Now, that would never have existed 20 years ago. 25 years ago and now you know things like that you know reality TV has, has taken over so what this leads me to be concerned about is you know we see this the next thing coming along you know is the metaverse you know there are already you know people who are existing a large part of their life in in the metaverse and uh, this is just, a, I see it as an extension. If you think of social media, and the biggest problem with social media is that people put a curated view of their world out there. And, it's, you know, people try and put the best version of themselves out there or, you know, give a, an, Im an image of their life which probably isn't realistic or isn't every day. And um, the metaverse is just a, an extension of that. It's people living a much better life than their real life in an artificial world and uh, that terrifies me for what that means for our kids um, for their ability to interact with other human beings and for how they interact with the world at large and how important that becomes to them because again this is not their fault you know we as a society as parents as grandparents you know we, we set the parameters for our children and we have to do better of what's acceptable. I think, yeah, the role of parents today, and I take my hat off to people who are parents today because it's hard, really hard. It's never been more important for you to give guidance to your children and to always be aware that, you know, you have to understand what they're doing online. 
for so many reasons. Um, but you have to be in that world because if, if it's just happening and you're a spectator, then I think you're not, you're not doing the best thing by your kids. Uh, they deserve better. And I've said many times before, you know, when we have children, you know, we owe them uh, the best childhood we can give them. And this is an example of providing that guidance perspective. I'm not saying that we can or should uninvent the internet. You know, there are many, many amazing positive things about the internet we have today. The receptacle of knowledge which is available to anybody is incredible. You know, YouTube, you can literally teach yourself to do anything on YouTube free. Um, the ability to interact with like-minded people is really, really important. So it's not all doom and gloom, and no one is saying, well, I'm not saying at least that we should completely unplug from it. But we do have to make sure that for our children, it's part of a balanced upbringing, and they have exposure to real life, and nature, and human interaction, as well as these other things. Because then we'll raise, you know, well-balanced, um, nuanced humans who will be able to interact with others in society in ways other than virtually because you only have to look at the uh, the written uh, language skills and verbal communication skills of kids today who are leaving school and you can see there's been a deterioration and it's because the way that which we communicate has become uh, SMS and instant message and it's abbreviations and emojis and things like that and again I'm not saying that's the end of the world, but we should be able to still communicate properly. And uh, I've seen numerous situations with uh, young police officers who um, are really good people, but their communication skills with uh, members of the public are very poor. And it's because they haven't done enough of it. They're not used to talking to real people particularly in a uh, situation which is a high stress or uh, a difficult situation. Maybe you're dealing with a domestic violence incident or something like that where you've got to communicate with somebody and build empathy and rapport very quickly. It's pretty hard to do if you've spent your life just sat behind a computer or behind a phone because you know real interaction, real humans, it's a different kettle of fish entirely. And if you do it wrong... In that, uh, in the real life situation, there's a genuine potential for things to go, um, you know, badly wrong, badly very quickly. And um, you know, we, we have this. I think Mike Tyson said that you know, if you uh, you know, everyone talks shit to everyone else and, until you get punched in the face, and it's like um, that is the internet we live. You know, that's, that's our world now that people can be horribly abusive to each other online without any real consequences. Um, but if you do speak to people. In that way, out in the real world, there's every chance that it will go sideways for you, and um, I don't think a lot of people are very used to that these days. So, I guess what I'm asking for is for people just to really, really think about, you know, their relationship with their kids and their kids' relationship with technology, and how we can make it better. You know, we are breaking new ground, and we haven't had this time in human history is new. If you look at a timeline of human history, you know this period of the last you know, 15 years is nothing but a, a second on the clock in human history, and our reptilian brains are dealing with things that, frankly, 
they're not, not designed for. So there's a period, a big period of adjustment. But we as parents, we as grandparents, we as mentors have to walk the path that we want our children to follow. And we have to make sure that path is going to keep them safe while still exposing them to the danger that is life. You know, life cannot be lived without risk or you're not living. So, you know, it's our job to expose them to controlled danger. It's our job to expose them to, the, you know, what's good and bad in the world. It's our job to lead. And uh, I think as a parent, my only advice I'll give to anybody, because it's a tough job, is that although you always want to have great relationship with your children, you are not their friend. You are their parent. And when you confuse those two roles, it doesn't lead uh, to a good place. And you see that time and time again with, with parents today that want to be their mates with their kids. And uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be friends with your children, but your primary role is to parent and to give that direction, support, love, that mentorship, that empowerment to your kids. You can't just be their mate because uh, they just won't respect you and they won't listen to you. So that's my thoughts on kids. Um, it just came to me. I hadn't actually planned to do a second episode with just me prattling on. I've got some interesting people coming lined up to, to chat in the future. Um, but there's just I needed to get that off my chest and also talk about um, the few things I've missed out from episode one. So there's, yeah, I think that's a couple more things to talk about it and then uh, that'll be it. So um, final thoughts really in relation to the first episode. And what I realized talking about uh, my life and upbringing, those kind of things, is that I actually have had very few mentors in my life. I've always found it, um, easy is the wrong word, but I've always been attracted to the role of the mentor and like mentoring you know, younger men in work. and things like that. I've always just kind of been drawn to that and get a lot out of it. But for my own kind of uh, life, I haven't really had many mentors haven't sought them out and I thought about that a lot and it made me realize really that it's actually a weakness of mine um I'm just not very good at asking for help um I, I guess I've seen it mistakenly as a as a sign of weakness of not being self-sufficient and as I look back on my life and opportunities uh, there's definitely opportunities missed because um, you know, I didn't seek it out, I didn't ask the question, I didn't ask for help. And uh, it's funny how these little things kind of come to th into your head, because the other day there was a situation at home, and I, I had to do a bloody printer, and I had to print off some very important documents um, for one of my other little jobs. And uh, the printer gave up the ghost, as it does. And I was like, oh shit, I need to get this done. And like, my wife said to me, oh, well, I just phone up somebody and ask you to use a printer. And I'm like, no. You know, that's embarrassing. I have to ask for help. And I thought about it after the event. And that's my problem. It's a weakness of mine. I don't like asking for help. I think it comes partly from my upbringing, from I didn't have a great relationship with my dad in terms of having that sort of help side of things. Not because he wasn't helpful particularly, but... 
he just it wasn't available. So um, I kind of learned to be a a bit self sufficient and b also not not to ask when I should have asked. So that's something I've carried through into adult life. And you know, at fifty three years old, I'm still that way. So I guess my commitment to myself is to be more open to asking for help and looking for mentors myself. And uh, I suppose that's the point of this this podcast ultimately is to get people, including myself, to think about things and maybe make some changes for, for the better. So my commitment is to ask for that help more. Um, so that's that. And my final thought was, um, you know, I don't really watch the TV much at all, but I like films. And, um, you know, sometimes we watch uh, films which are a bit older sometimes and it's good to watch them because you you kind of watch them um, out of their time of when they were made, obviously. It's good to see where things have aged or they're still relevant. And it happened, I think it was Easter Sunday, we ended up watching uh, The Dead Poet Society. It's quite a well-known film. It was made in 1989. And uh, long story short, in case you don't know what it's about, it's about a very kind of uptight and strict private school uh, for boys in America in the 50s. And a new teacher starts there, played by Robin Williams, who was an old boy there himself. And he um, encourages and challenges the, the boys in his class to think outside the box and to think differently about their lives and we watched it the other day and it was it's still a a really really good film and the messages in it you could argue have become even more relevant today when the film came out and when the film was set so bear in mind it was it was set in the 50s we're now 2022 the message of a carpe diem Seizing the day, making the most out of your life. I think that's an ever-challenging uh, thing which will never go away, but it, uh, life becomes, for many people, more stressful, more hard, more difficult, more pressure. Actually living your life and, and making the most out of your life is a, it's a challenge. Um, the message of non-conformity to society uh, there's a part of the film where uh, he gets the kids to walk around the kind of playground area and they all start walking in step almost um, and to, to illustrate the fact that people normally conform. So, you know, at the moment we, I think we need people to challenge what is normal, you know, what is a conformist and just to, to have different kinds of lifestyles. So look, we really enjoyed the film. It's uh, I won't won't kind of spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's a bit sad, in parts, um, but it's uh, the it's a very powerful message. So maybe I don't know if you get a chance, watch Dead Poet Society and watch it with a new pair of eyes and see it in today's society compared to back in the fifties. And it's amazing how much things haven't changed, or you could argue have changed for the worse. Anyway, that's enough for me. Um, so looking forward to speaking to some of you uh, soon in the future um, really enjoying getting the opportunity to, to talk and uh, share some of these ideas hope you're enjoying it and uh, I'll talk to you soon cheers <laughs>